Hello, everyone, and welcome to Affinity Cast, the podcast dedicated to playing Affinity in Modern. I'm your host, Brian Zabowski, and welcome to the show. So, for the second episode, I figured I would talk about one of the basics of Affinity, and that is the shell. Now, anyone who's been playing Affinity for a while already knows what the shell is, and that's basically the uh, selection of cards that make up the Affinity deck itself. Now... There are decks that stray away from this, such as uh, Hardened Scales Affinity, and they play a different set of cards than your standard Affinity deck, which is fine. And there's there's also other brews like Eldrazi Affinity that do okay, but the hardcore Affinity deck as it is known in modern today, in 2018, which hasn't changed much in the five years I've been playing it is the 54 card shell. Now, we've made some improvements, and we've made some changes to the deck, which I think are a must, but this 54 cards is the basis for every affinity deck that is currently being played. And all the ones that are be playing at a high level, consistently winning with success, are a derivative of the 54 card shell. Now, there might be like 95% of the cards are there where they might make a tweak or two, which I'll go over that differentiates it from other versions. But in the end, it's still the same shell regardless. So, so I'm going to start with the land. There's 16 land in the 54 card shell and eight mana sources. Now, usually I look at it as 24 mana sources because it's just easier to look at it that way, because Springleaf Drum and Mox Opal, their only purpose there is they produce mana. And they also are an artifact, which works with Ravager and Metalcraft and Plating and, and whatnot. But for the lands, it's four Dark Steel Citadel. Now, some versions cut one Dark Steel Citadel for a Seagate Wreckage or an Inventor's Fair or some other utility land. Uh, I've seen some budget versions play... Um, I think it's Contested Field, a Contested War Zone, I think that's it, where it gives plus one, plus zero to each attacking creature, and whenever an opponent deals combat damage uh, to you, you have to give them control of it, so it's constantly swapping back and forth if they're playing a creature deck, and they're getting through, <clears throat> but that's more of a budget card. Dark Steel Citadel is common, and it's been reprinted multiple times, so everyone's playing four of these. It's great for Metalcraft, because it's indestructible. And it just helps with those turn one uh, abusive plays with Opal, because you need one less artifact in order to get two mana on turn one. So everyone's playing that, usually trim one for, like I said, one of the utility lands, because... The other ones are usually too important, and this is the least important of the four different types. Next one is Blink Moth Nexus and Ink Moth Nexus. These are very important. They give us a lot of utility and versatility because we can uh, dodge sorcery speed removal, like Wrath of God, Supreme Verdict, with our manlands because they're not a creature on our opponent's turn unless we activate them. So we can kind of uh, control the flow of the game by pumping them and then leaving them dormant so when they do tap out to Supreme Verdict, we keep, can keep the pressure on. Ink Moths are amazing for alternate wins 
when they present themselves. Sometimes you might be in a position where an opponent gains an absurd amount of life, either with Soul Sisters or uh, Coco decks that have the infinite combo, which aren't too prevalent nowadays, but they were. And having an alternate way to win in the deck that isn't damage-related, because no one can win when you have 10 poison counters. Everyone dies. doesn't matter where you are in the game. The only exception is if you have a card that prevents you from losing, like a Platinum Angel. So that's really helpful because a lot of people don't suspect the Infect kill out of nowhere because they don't count or they don't think about it. And also gives us a way to pressure our opponent in a different way. Because if we get like one or two Inkmouth Nexuses starting to do damage, we can end the game a lot sooner. Because they might be at, you know, 18 life, but five poison counters. So it makes it a, a very versatile card and a, a must-have. A lot of people will cut one Blink Moth uh, for a, a utility land sometimes, or another basic. I don't agree with this, but it's it's not a terrible choice. I think cutting Darksteel Citadel is a better choice. But teach their own. I mean, it's just one of the ones I've seen. It doesn't happen too often, but I've seen more than one person do it. And usually these things, uh, with people talking about cutting cards, it's it's mostly about people who are just trying different things. And I try to only give examples when I've seen it a few times. Because, you know, one person could do something really ridiculous and, some, and they could have success. Not because their version of the deck is better, but because as long as you keep the same 54-card shell, you will do good. You can put six 10-mana cards in your deck that you'll never cast and do nothing. But you'll still do well if you have the shell. You won't do as good as someone who's playing, for, say, for Galvanic Blasts and, like, two thought casts. But you'll still do well, because the core is the same, and the core is very, um, it's been perfected. So the last set of lands here is a set of Glimmer Voids or Spire. It's a Spire of Industry. Those cards are really good, the Spire specifically, but I don't think it's right to go all Spires. Now, the biggest problem prior to Spire was that if you had a hand with a Glimmer Void and your only play was a Vault Scourge or a Signal Pest because you either had the Mulligan or you just got a hand that was kind of clunky. Let's see, you got like three land or like two land and they're both Glimmer Voids, a Vault Scourge, a Signal Pest, a Ravager, a Steel Overseer, and then an Etch Champion. I think that's seven. Uh, it's a good hand. I mean, if you're an unknown opponent, I'd keep that. But I wouldn't keep it because if my opponent has a lightning bolt and they kill my vault scourge, they also destroy my land. It's it's not good enough. So I would keep it if I didn't have glimmer voids. But with glimmer voids, that's a mull, unfortunately. If you know what your opponent's playing, they're playing Tron and... You know, you can go Vault Scourge, and it's game one, so they don't have Nature's Claim in there, and there's, like, no chance they can kill it. That's a fine keep. But it leads to mulligans, which makes the decks inconsistent. 
Now, Spire fixes this problem, but in an exchange for a point of life every time you tap it for colored mana. However, you can just tap it for colorless. So the question really comes down to, do we lose more games because of having the mulligan, a Glimmer Void hand, or because we took a point of damage and therefore allowed our opponents to kill us when they normally wouldn't have killed us because we would have been at a higher life total. And the consensus is that Spire is not costing us that many games, where the mulliganing hurts us way more. I tend to agree, because very few games I've noticed where the damage from Spire has mattered, because you can usually establish an Opal or Springleaf Drum within the first five turns to produce your colored mana, and you just occasionally tap it, maybe to move a plating, or when you want to play two colored spells that turn, or maybe they try to cut you off your colored mana by destroying your Opal or Springleaf Drum. But I think the perfect balance is somewhere in the middle, because what a lot of people don't realize with the Spire is that a lot of times your opponent won't make a play in order to win unless they can actually kill you. So, for example, you're playing against Scapeshift, and they you're at 18 life. Well, they Scapeshift and they kill you exactly for 18. But if you're at 20 life, they have would have to wait one more turn to get another land into play. Because they do damage in intervals of three with Valakut. So, even though you're like, well, they just would have killed me anyways, thing is, they wouldn't have killed you until next turn. So, that paying that one life twice actually cost you a turn. Which could have mattered because maybe next turn you could have gotten all, on, all in on Ink Moth and actually killed them. So, you lost that game because of Spire, even though it wasn't like. The difference between, oh, I'm at one life and I can't pay for Spire, or I went from four life to three life and they lightning bolted me. People remember those games, but they don't remember the times where their opponent went all out, or maybe they made a play where they got them really low and locked them out of Spire, and then that bought them a turn. So maybe they, maybe you were at 19 and they did 18 damage. And they knew in order for you to win next turn you needed access to that colored mana and that bought them a turn and then they win so people don't recognize that but i think the perfect balance is two spire one glimmer void because although the glimmer void hands go down dramatically from four glimmer voids to one it's reduced by 75 percent it's reduced even further because you can no longer get hands with two Glimmer Voids or three Glimmer Voids. Although those were exceptionally rare, the chances of getting those, because if you keep a hand with like a Spire and a Glimmer Void, that's fine. Because you'll usually be able to put more artifacts on the table than they can keep up with killing, unless they get like multiple ancient grudges or some sort of mass removal. And you're fine. It'll probably never die. And even if it does, you've already dumped out your hand and you've established a position on the board so that if it does die, it doesn't really hurt you too often. So those hands are now possible. Whereas before, you could potentially get two Glimmer Voids and it doesn't work. Now, we're just said four lands. 
most people play three of these and one basic. Now, the basic is whatever basic you have the most um, colored cards in your deck. That's usually an island because Master of Ethereum is blue, Thoughtcast is blue, Glitness Crane is blue, um, sideboard cards such as Stubborn Denial and Spell Pierce are blue, and a few other choices. Or a mountain because of Galvanic Blast, Gur for Aethergrid, Blood Moons, Ancient Grudge, uh, Whip Flare. I've even seen Swamps. Because you got the double black and plating, which is nice. And then you have a lot of uh, good black cards. Like there's uh, Stain the Mind. There's Bitter Blossom. Thoughtseize. Duress or Inquisition if you're on a budget. But Thoughtseize is pretty affordable now. When I first started playing, it was like $60, $70. This is before Theros reprinted it. And I used Duress and they were fine. They're actually a lot better in the burn matchup because you didn't have to lose the life. But that's, uh, that's a few cards. Also, Bomat Courier, if uh, you're playing red for Mountain. Now, although there's a 54-card shell, one of the optional cards, and I'll cover this a little bit later, is the fourth Glimmer Void or Spire, or a 2-2 split. You know, a lot of people do 3-1 or 2-2. I like 2-2 split, so two Glimmer Voids, two Spire, and then a basic. Or you could do three multicolor lands, and whatever split you choose, and two basics. So when you get pathed or ghost quartered, you actually thin out your deck more, which is nice. And it also gives you a little bit more consistency on the colored front. So that's the 16 lands. Now the next is the four springleaf drums and four opals, so 24 mana sources. Not much need to be said here. You need to play four. Some people side one out. Uh, one of the Springleaf drums out, game two, but that's I don't know if that's right. Depends on how many colored cards you're playing, and if you're playing the draw, and what you're playing against, and what your mana curve is, your general curve of the deck. Next is four Cranial Platings. Every deck plays these. They're one of the best cards in the deck, if not the best card, and makes every creature a threat. I don't need to say more. Then you have the 26 Creatures. The 26 creatures consist of four of the following. Four Vault Scourge, four Ornithopter, four Signal Pest, four Steel Overseer, four Arcbound Ravager, four of your favorite three drop, whether that be Etch Champion or Master of Ethereum, and two Memnites for 26 total. Now, some variations include Cutting a Vault Scourge for a Hope of Gurifer. 1-1 Legendary Flyer that when it deals combat damage to player, you may sacrifice it so they can't cast spells during their next turn. I think it's non-creature spells. I've seen some people use this to combat Storm. I don't know how good it is. I don't have a lot of Storm in my meta, if anyone plays it at all. And it seems a very narrow, because it needs to connect first in order to stop them. And it needs to happen on their turn, which... You know, Storm can combo off at instant speed sometimes. And just it being on their turn kind of doesn't matter. And other times, it has to be on their turn. It just depends. Not only that, it's just a 1-1 flyer for one. So it's not terrible. You don't have to pay the two life, but I think you work in your weaken your burn matchup, and it's like, do you plan to see more Storm or more burn? Because Vault Scourge is one of the best tools against burn. But that's something that people cut... 
Sometimes people cut an ornithopter for something similar. Uh, so we have signal pests. Signal pests, I've seen one person cut four signal pests for four Bomet career. Don't know if I agree with that. I tried it. It wasn't too bad, but I don't know if it's better. It's hard. It's kind of hard to measure these things because like you'll be... You'll do better in some games that you you wouldn't with Signal Pest, and there's other games you don't do well where Signal Pest will be better and vice versa. So it's like, is it objectively better? Will you get more wins? It's hard to tell. Then you have four Steel Overseer. This is one that people usually cut. Usually one. They go down to three, sometimes even two. Four Flex Cards. Maybe they want to play another... Uh, one of the three drops, either a Master of Ethereum or an Etch Champion, so they play five total. And they'll cut one of these. This is arguably the worst card in the deck if Stony Silence is a thing. Because it's a 2-mana 1-1 one, one that does nothing. At least Arcbound Ravager lets you move a counter. So it's at least a little bit better. So I understand why people cut it. Also, it's one of the slower cards. Like, it doesn't do anything the turn it comes into play. And you have to wait a whole turn to pump your team. And then you have to tap it. So it doesn't get a chance to attack. I mean, it buffs your rest of your guys, but if you're playing it's a heavy removal deck, it's kind of, like, not good. But it's still good to keep in, in my opinion, because it presents a threat that if they don't deal with it promptly, it'll make everything else a threat. So it's a good target for removal to make way for your other creatures. And then the new, uh, the new lists are actually running Karn which I'm not covering in this shell, because it still hasn't been proven yet. Now, I think it's still... I think it is a replacement for Master. I'm talking about the three drops, because some people like it more, but I want to give it more time before we see if Karn should make the list as, like, one of the shell cards. You know, it's doing well. It's actually putting up results. And people are liking it. I haven't had a chance to test with it. I haven't had a chance to get a... Oops, phone. I haven't had a chance to get a hold of two to test. My store's been out. And they're like $65 right now. So, they're a little pricey. And I know they're not going to stay that way. I mean, people said the same thing about the Flip Jace. And he's now, what, 15 bucks, 20 bucks, Not much. So... As far as the uh, three drops go, you have Etch Champion and Master of Ethereum. If you're playing against fast decks or big decks like Eldrazi, Master of Ethereum's your guy. If you're playing against heavy removal or uh, decks that like to clog the board, Etch Champion's your guy. And right now people are doing a split. And for some who are playing with Karn, they're taking out the Masters completely and replacing them with Karn. So... I just thought I'd throw that in there so people are aware if you haven't seen people playing with it because it is it is a good card, but we'll see if it sticks. I personally think that, you know, Etch Champion is one of the best cards in the deck because it just, it's very hard to deal with. Very few decks have an answer to this. One of the best answers is actually Spellskite because it can block it. But as soon as you put a plating on it, that's no longer an answer. Um, another answer is include a Phyrexian Revoker, um, Blade Splicer, Mutavault, um, any Eldrazi, because they're all colorless. 
and also, uh, you know, board wipes. But decks like Jund, they have very few answers. It's very hard for them to deal with it. That's why it's so effective. And Master's pretty solid. I mean, his uh, Anthem effect is really nice, and he's one of the better cards to play when someone plays Stony Silence, because you can pressure them really quickly. So that's that's a split. I mean, you could play 2-2 two, two split, 3-1 split, or just 4, but most people right now, and this is being recorded in May 2018, because Jund is on the rise, or has been, because they unbanned Bloodbraid Elf. A lot of people are saying that you need four extra champions in your 75. I agree. I think that's a good place. You might play two in the main, two in the board, or three in the main, one in the board. But I think having uh, all four in your 75 is a uh, wise decision. But I think too many people are seeing one deck change and are immediately saying we need to play extra champion. Now, if the meta is... Let's say the meta is like 60-40... Uh, 60% of the decks are decks that are not removal-based. So that Master of Ethereum is good against 60% of the decks. And then 40% of the decks are removal-heavy. you got your Grixis Control, you got your Jeskai Control, you got your um, Jund, Abzan, Burn, decks that, like, play a lot of cards that will kill your creatures. So they can keep killing your master, so you want something that has more protection. So your extra champion would be the choice for those decks. And then Jund comes around and goes from a 5% representation to a 10%, which is kind of what it did. It's at 9% a pair, um, based on MTG Top 8's percentages. It's 9% meta share right now. One of the most popular decks next to Humans and Affinity. Well... Jund is already in the 40% category, and if it goes up 5%, it goes to 45%. Master of Ethereum is still good. Because there's still decks like Tron, where you want to race. There's still decks like Storm and Valakut, where you want to be able to put it down as much damage as possible, as fast as possible. And Edge Champion doesn't do that. So everyone who's due, as soon as they saw Jund jump up in the ranks and be more popular, jammed four Master of Ethereums in their main board or not Master of Ethereum's, um, four edge champions in their main board, isn't necessarily the right play. They're like, well, I'm winning. It's like, well, of course you are, because are you winning because of that decision in the games where it matters, or are you winning just because Affinity does what it does and you just drew better? It's hard to say. Because the decks vary so little to pinpoint it to this exact card has won me more games than if I played this card in all these games and scenarios is very hard to tell. So. There's, uh... The only thing left for the creatures is the Memnites. And the Memnites are... pretty good on the opener and one of the worst top decks, because they do nothing. They run into everything, they have no evasion. But someone recently did a, like, number study... And said that for each zero-cost artifact in your deck, you up your chances of getting a broken draw. And by broken, that means an opal draw with two mana available turn one to either drop a plating, a ravager, or a steel overseer. Turn one is increased by 2%. So Memnites are actually key, along with ornithopters and opals 
and any other zero casting cause artifact you can think of to make the openers as explosive as possible. So they are needed. And they still do work here and there. They're good for blocking infect creatures or, you know, pushing some damage through occasionally. And they carry a plating, so there's not much more you can ask for them. So that's the 26 creatures. So you got your Vault Scourge, Signal Pest, Ornithopters, Steel Overseers, Ravagers, uh, four of your three drops, and two limits. Um, but another thing about Ravager, uh, I actually skipped him. He's one of the best cards in the deck. You know, everyone plays it, and you never side him out. I mean, I'm going to do an episode that covers the sideboarding specifically, because there is sometimes you want to side him out, but you never side all of them out. And some people are probably hearing this, they're like, what? You, you, sh you should never side it out. Mm, there's a few times you actually want to, but we'll go over that later. So that's 16 land, 8 other mana sources, so 24 mana sources, 26 creatures. That's 50 cards plus 4 platings. That's a 54-card shell. If you stick with this 54-card shell, within reason, I mean, there's a lot of exceptions, like cutting a Steel Overseer for maybe another Galvanic Blast or another 3-drop, or cutting a Vault Scourge for a Hopagura for changing up their mana base. As long as you're, like, 95% here, your deck's good. And as long as the six flex cards that you can play are not stupid cards that have no reason being in the deck, like, you're going to play Scape Shift. Why would you do that? I've seen someone talk about it. It's like, no. You're not clever, and that's not smart. It, it's bad on so many levels. But you're welcome to do it, and go lose. Have fun. I mean, I try to look at all of the things I'm telling you guys as a competitive view. My goal is to win as many games as possible by any means necessary, except cheating. I don't advocate any of that. No one should ever cheat or lie to win, but within the competitive sphere. So I'm only going to recommend what I think will help you win more games and be better at magic. So... As far as the flex spots go, you can play just about anything. I mean, as long as it's related to Affinity, and it's a good card. And really, a lot of people are like, okay, well, should I play Galvanic Blast? It comes down to, is there a lot of decks where Galvanic Blast favorably interacts with something your opponent is doing besides just pointing it at their face? If it is, play them. If it is sometimes, play less than four. If it's mostly like combo decks that don't have a key creature in play or decks that try to win big like Tron where it's like there's nothing, what are you going to do? Double Galvanic Blast a uh, Worm Coil Engine? You can. I would recommend against it. It's just, I mean, it's just a bad play. But if you got to do what you got to do. And then there's, there's other cards like Thoughtcast, which is great for... It's actually a pretty good card right now. Uh, Glintness Crane is also good. You, know, you could play... Like, one card I thought about playing is Ranker. Because one of the biggest problems with uh, blockers, especially, like, Lingering Souls, is that 
no matter how big our creature is with a plating, it doesn't get through. And usually a lingering soul will block a blink moth or an ink moth or a vault scourge and kill them. While giving a trample helps. Well, um, using other cards like Ghost Fireblade is probably better because it's reusable and you have the advantage of not having the card die because they killed it in response to enchanting it like you did with Rancor. But just in general, anything will work. You know, I like Insult Artifact. I've seen Bomat Courier, also a big fan of that. Uh, Bomat Courier, Insult Artifact, Thoughtcast, Glintness Crane, Galvanic Blast. I mean, Mainboard Whip Flare, I've seen it. If there's a meta full of creatures, especially small creatures, that'll work too. I mean, it's just really whatever you want. As long as you keep to the 54 card shell. Within reason. And then you play whatever's good in your meta. What cards are effective. You'll do fine. And that's the basics of the shell. And that's the basis of why Affinity is so effective. Is that everyone who is playing the actual Affinity. Not like a offshoot version. Is playing those 54 cards. Now one of the cards I recommend right now. Is an additional land. To go up to 25 mana sources. Which I think is the best version. So it might be a 55 card shell. But a lot of people are still playing 50, um, the 54, and they're still playing 24 mana sources. And then a Welding Jar. So, it's like if I'm talking with someone and I say, oh, I'm playing, you know, uh, 25th Land, or 25th Mana Source, Welding Jar, and, like, four Galvanics. You should know exactly every card I'm playing, for the most part. Or have, a, like... A, 95% idea of what I am playing. So, that's what I recommend. Extra land in a welding jar for now. And then mix it up. I think right now I'm playing extra land, welding jar, one thought cast, one glint nest crane, and two galvanics with uh, one basic. Two glimmer void, two uh, spire of industry, three masters in the main, two etched in the main, and two in the side. That's my split. So, I hope this helped anyone who was uh, wondering what the shell is. And, uh, you know, see you next time.